I'm Billy Hollowell, and welcome to the Prodigal Stories podcast, a show where Trey Goins Phillips and I take you through some of the most powerful stories of the day, stories of hope, transformation, and intrigue. On today's episode, we welcome Robert Borelli, a man who went from a life filled with the mafia, drugs, and prison to a life governed by Christ. With no further ado, let's welcome Robert to the Prodigal Stories podcast. Robert, how you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. How are you? I am doing well. All right, so we got a lot to unpack. Your story is a crazy story. I mean, it's a wild story of redemption and crime in the beginning. Take me through what it was like being in in a mafia family. Well, first let me just I was because my old name is Robert Engel. Okay, that's my birth name. So because my dad wasn't Italian, I couldn't get become a member of the mob. Okay. So I was considered an associate. Okay. So there's a little bit of a difference. And that's a interesting. Whole story, I didn't even, yeah, that's like a yeah. whole other podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I want to explain that too because a lot of people say, yeah, well, yeah. you know, you were in, well, yeah, I was. I was part of the sure. Gambino crime family. So, I mean, you know, growing up, they, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and it was run by the Gambino crime family, my neighborhood. So they protected the neighborhood, and they got a lot of respect. And you know, it seemed like people in my in my in my family and people in the neighborhood were struggling to make ends meet. It was a kind of low class neighborhood, but these guys seemed to have it all, and they got a lot of respect from a lot of people in the neighborhood. So at an early age, to me, that's my way. That's where I want to go. I don't want to be like my mom and dad struggling to make finances and pay bills and stuff like that. I like to be where these guys are, getting all the respect. So I gravitated to that at an early age. <clears throat> so I started doing little things for them. Just I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Goodfellas. Yeah. And, uh, Henry yeah. Hill does that, helps them out when he's a kid. But that's kind of the story because that's from my neighborhood also. So that movie is from my neighborhood. You know, I think people who aren't familiar with mafia culture right it's foreign to them outside of watching movies right? right what what is it that drives that sort of control over a neighborhood like what makes what makes sort of what sort of creates that like we own this neighborhood this is ours and we're going to do things for the neighborhood because it almost sounds like there's good intentions to a degree there well it is and it goes way back if you go all the way back to even the mafia because basically in new york is considered look costa nostra not not mafia i mean our thing that's what it means yeah, in Italian. Yeah. So that's how it is in New York. Mafia is really a Sicilian kind of thing back in Sicily. Yes. But they correspond with one another. But anyway, so what I would say is they come in and, and they give opportunities to families. Like my mom would take maybe 60 cents and play a number, hopefully to hit and maybe win $15, $20, $30, whatever it was. I don't remember what it was at that point in time. Sports betting, if you couldn't make it to the racetrack, you wanted to bet sports. So they made it accommodating for the people there to maybe get lucky or something like that and make a couple of dollars, put a couple of extra dollars in their neighborhood. But also protected their neighborhood, which is where they got all the respect. Because I really could even remember police officers approaching these guys. And it was kind of like a, a, they hated each other, but there was a mutual respect in one area. And that was taking, making sure the neighborhood crime wasn't being you know, in the neighborhood. So our crimes were petty crimes, you could say, small larceny, numbers, bookmaking, and stuff like that. So we didn't see the extent of other things in the mob. So 
they didn't show that that part of life. So I mean, yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining. No, right, you are. You are. Yeah, yeah. No, you are. Um, so what happens to you then? You start. You get more into this life. Take me through. Well, you. I started like. Like I said, like in, in Goodfellas, it shows you working card games, like Sopranos, they show that kind of, that's kind of, the, they, I was a little tough kid, you know, I was small and got picked on a lot, but I wouldn't let people pick on me, so I would do whatever it took to make sure people didn't bother me anymore, that means whatever it took, so anyway, let's leave that there, but yeah. anyway, uh, so they gravitated towards that little tough kid, and I was kind of like a, a little cute kid too, so they liked that there, so they would let me come in and... I would shoot pool with them and just kind of like be around them. And, you know, I would say this here is because the attention that, because my dad had to work hard and, and try to make ends meet, he wasn't really a big part of my life. But these older guys kind of gave me the attention that maybe I was starving for. I look back at it and see it that way now. didn't see it at that point in time. But that they would give me the attention, so I gravitated to, to them and that lifestyle. So they kind of like became my family, at, even at an early age, not knowing much about organized crime right. or mafia or anything like that so yeah and so as you grow up and you are you know involved with you know this lifestyle how did it how did it impact the way you saw the world around you you know i i'll say it this way because i don't see it this way anymore so i want to make that clear but one of the first things that this other guy older guy nikki told me when i was getting really close with him because you know, as you grow up with them and you're doing things for them, the more that they can trust you, the more things that they're going to give you to do, and you kind of like climb up the ladder of trust with them. And this one guy would say, I remember walking out of a card game. It was like maybe about 8 o'clock in the morning and uh, a social club that we had, and he would walk out of the game, and he would point to the people who were waiting in my neighborhood, friends that I knew for buses or walking to the train station, and he would say, those are all the suckers. They go on, they work, and they got to give half their money to the government. We're the wise guys. We're the smart guys. And that had an impact on me at an early age. Yeah. You know, so I, if I went and got a legitimate job, which I did a couple of times, I felt like I was a sucker. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, you could be out there being a winner over here doing this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And making a lot more money. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> which which I think, you know, though that makes sense. Of course, it's not how you view it now. But at that time, it, it had an impact. Saying yes. that had an impact. And then you connect it with the reality of, oh, I'm looking at my check and I'm seeing all this money go to taxes. And over here, exactly. I don't have to deal with any of that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what what for you? You know, as you kind of journey through and you reflect back on your life now, because you, you ended up in trouble a little later on in life, right? Yeah, my, my first case as a 22-year-old, I was being hidden out by the mob at the age of 18 years old. They hid me away from my family, away from everybody, because the cops were looking for me for a murder that was committed. When I came back around at the age of 20 years old... So you head uh, out for a couple of years. Yeah, I've been, yeah, I was on the land for a couple of... We call it on the land, running away from the law. When I came back into the neighborhood a little bit, my first arrest was for two murders in possession of a weapon. I was only 21, 20 years old at the time. I think that kind of was a big introduction for the wise guys because I got locked up for cases like that that put you away for the rest of your life at 20 years old. And that days, and back in the 70s, you didn't hear too much of that for young kids yeah. locked up for those kind of things. And I stood up, you know, I did the street kind of thing, didn't open up my mouth, did my time until they bailed me out. 
And I gravitated towards, wow, there's a real stand-up kid. He passed kind of like the test, if you want yeah. to say it, that he's not going to give anybody up. He's the real deal. Right. You held out. You didn't turn anybody in. Exactly. Right. And um, would you describe yourself at that point as being violent? Like, were you... I, I was a very violent guy. I have to tell you that. I was a very violent guy. I could look back now and see a lot of reasons why I might have been that way. I mean, I'm not a psychologist or anything like right. that, but I could look back and see certain things that happened to in, in my life as a young kid that wasn't dealt with. So I always encourage people today. Deal uh, with it. If, so Yeah, you have to deal with it. You have to deal with these things. And if your kid is going through a tough time, you know, because how we act out is basically something that's deep inside of us. So the behavior is, I think, a conflict of something that's a lot more deeper. So absolutely, absolutely. Know. So yeah, I was I was a violent guy. I handled things. I, I wasn't really. I didn't do well in school. You know, I don't know if I had a learning disorder or not. And back in them days, they didn't evaluate you that way. Uh, so my way of handling things was with my hands or picking up a stick or something like that. So that's how I handle my conflicts. And so the, it seems like the, the crimes kind of got more serious that you were accused of as time went on. Yes. And then what was sort of the, the big moment? You were 42? 42? 42, yes. And that was, take me through that and, and the impact that that had on, on you and your family. Well, if you just give me a minute to go back. Because sure. even with, with, with being part of the mob and coming out and being back and forth in and out of prisons and jails almost all my life, but drugs came around, and we didn't believe in that at one time, but now there was big money in it, so I wanted to get part of the big money thing because it brings power and a lot of people around you. So I got involved with doing selling drugs, and then drugs started selling me, and I hit my rock bottom. So I was a crackhead when I got wow. arrested. In, so in selling led you to use, obviously, and yes. use led you to addiction. Yes, without a doubt. And then addiction led you to... Rikers Island. Yeah. <laughs> yes. At 42. At 42 years old, uh, I had a, a, a little girl that was born in 1993, so I think it was about 39 years old at that point in time, and I thought that was going to change my life because now I have right. somebody else. Now you have something yeah. to exactly find myself anchor you. in. And, yeah. And, yeah. And it didn't work. Seven weeks after she was born, I walked out of her life to get high one more time. I had an argument with her mother. That one more time lasted for quite a few years and the mother felt that was no wasn't good for me to be around my daughter so I haven't seen my daughter from that point on on until I came to Rikers Island now I say I got a visit by two angels back in January 23rd 1997 but they didn't have halos they were warrant officers <laughs> I was wanted for crimes by the feds in Florida that I committed and then I was wanted in crime in New York City so they arrested me put me in Rikers Island and the epitome of what happened to me was I'm trying to get money to get myself out, to get a good attorney, to get myself out of the mess I got myself into, get money for commissary so I can live as comfortable as I can and get the things that I need while I'm incarcerated. And my daughter's mom is allowing me to talk to my daughter over the phone, and I call her up. <clears throat> and this one time she's crying, and I said, Brianna, why are you crying? She said, because you won't come and see me. And it was just a flashback. When she said those words, if I could have ran and got high, I would have, but now I had to deal with all the pain, the shame, and the guilt all at once, that there's so many times I was in the neighborhood. Now, I'm not sure if the mother would have let me see her, but I didn't even make an attempt to see her. You didn't even try, right, right. So I'd rather get high than be with my daughter, and that just impacted my life and shattered my heart, and I ran back to myself, 
And as a Roman Catholic at that point in time, nothing against the Catholics. I'm not saying that. I knew about God but didn't know God. Yeah. So yeah. I gave God an ultimatum. I don't recommend everybody do what I did. <laughs> but I said either to have somebody kill me or change me. I was crying like a little baby. You said kill um, me or change me. Change me. I can't live with this pain anymore. I just didn't want to live with that pain anymore. It kind of um, hit you, it sounds like. It, it kind of all hit you. It, it broke my heart to shattered my heart in pieces, man. And I'm so thankful that God honored the cry of my heart on that jail cell. And he put those pieces of my broken heart together again and made me more valuable than what I was before I broke, my heart was broken. So let's talk about that. How long were you in Rikers Island? I was in Rikers Island for probably about five months before the government came into my life and said, if you cooperate with us and help us, we'll give you a fresh new start and we'll recommend you to be in the witness protection program. For me, I was completely in a hopeless state. Nobody wanted to help me. I didn't have commissary money. I'm Robert the Crackhead. I'm probably going to die this way. <clears throat> you know, You're hopeless at that point. Exactly. So when the government offered me that, I accepted their offer. I had to do a lot of things that normally I wouldn't have done, but I did do. Uh, corroborated with the government against my old friends and all that. And they placed me in this protection program from there. But I could see God moving from that point in time in Rikers Island. God's was honoring the desire of my heart to get to know Jesus more. I started reading the Bible, and every place they were bringing me, I was getting more Bible studies. It was more, just hitting you. It, it was hitting you. It was, yeah, yeah, I had such a hunger and a thirst for Jesus at that point in time in my life. I wanted to know so much more about him. Now, I had, don't have no control where the correction facilities are going to place you and put you. That's what I was going to say. Witness protection, when you go into that, I mean, is there any, do you have any idea what's going to happen to you, or is it basically whatever they decide? <clears throat> It's whatever they decide, but you don't go actually into the program until you get released from prison because I still had to do time. So I ended up doing two years, and I was in Sandstone, Minnesota when I got released. And uh, then you go into the program itself, and then they relocate you. They give you a new name, new social security number, everything. So you had to start new. over. I had to start life all over again. New name. New name. If you, How I look at it today, and I, I get excited about this because... It's kind of like being born again again. Yeah, yeah, you know? like legally born again yes, this time. Yeah. Yes, because I have a new name, new social security, new birth certificate, new baptism certificate. I have everything new on the Robert Borelli. And my record is wiped clean. I have no record anymore. So if you look up my name, Robert Borelli, and my social security number, you don't find nothing past 1999. So actually, as old as I am, I was born in 1999 as Robert Borelli. But what the government did in the natural that's what Jesus did in my spiritual. See, when I confessed and I asked him to, for his help and cried out for him to help me, I believe he came inside me and gave me a new brand new start with him. So I'm no longer Robert Engel anymore. I'm identified as a new creation in Christ Jesus. My slate is white, Queen. I have a fresh new start and a new identity in Jesus Christ. And your past is behind you. And yeah. all of that, I mean, it was, it was a lifestyle that just grew and grew, it sounds like, into something unsustainable. And that could have taken your life. Oh, yeah. Could have ended your life. And really, you could have been in prison for the rest of your life. I mean, you could have, you know, if you continued on that path. So you have this new start. How does it work with connecting with your family and the people you want to speak with? Because that, I would imagine, is that complicated in, when you go through that program? Well, in the beginning, let's just tell you, because you, once you get into the program, they relocate you. You can't have no connections to your family anymore. Anything. Every, all your past is wiped clean. I couldn't even take pictures of my mom and dad with me. They take everything from me, and it's a real brand new start. Did they know you were okay and alive, at least, your family? I believe that they did. They would allow me to call them, but I had to go through the government to make these phone calls because wow. they couldn't trace 
the call from where I was. They couldn't know. My mom had passed away um, about a month after I got out, out of prison. And she did, I didn't know she passed away until three days after she passed away. Wow. And I couldn't even go to her funeral. So that broke my heart because I wanted to give my mom. But I did witness to my mom while I was in prison, and she gave her life to Christ. See that? So you're going to see your mom again? Yes. See, so, that is... Yeah. I mean, what a hard story, though, because you can't, like, it's so hard to not be able to go to an event like that, right? Sure. But that's the primary place that you'd be targeted, I would imagine, by somebody who was angry. Exactly. And, and then the, even the mutual respect, uh, you won't want to cause trouble for my rest of my family because of decisions that I made, you know? Yeah. So you want to go there and choose more trouble, that conflict of something happening to me and my family have to deal with that. So it was a both, but I, the government wouldn't have let me go. I would have had to quit the program and then go. That's what I would have had wow. to do. But then I married somebody from New York City, which I wasn't supposed to do. So the government threw me out of the program. So you ended up leaving the program anyway. Yes. It might, yeah, I got thrown out. Have you ever, um, now that you're vocal about it and you talk about your story, have you ever encountered any of the people who would have wanted to hurt you before? I mean, have you ever interacted? I have, yes. There's a few people that on the down low, they don't want people to know they, they talk with me, but I'm witnessing with certain people. I'm not going to give out any names yeah, or anything because yeah. they're still living in the neighborhood and they're still around that kind of a lifestyle. So I'm, I talk with them and there's others that probably, you know, just would love to, to get a hold of me. Um, I don't let any of that there interfere with the call of God in my life. Yeah, and the call of God to share your story and to tell it. You know, we were talking before we even started recording that this is it's God's story, right? And this has been a theme in interviews I've been doing lately is hearing people say that. You know, God does things through our lives, and we can glorify Him by sharing yes. what He's done. Yeah. That's why I wrote the book called The Witness. I was a witness for the government. Now I'm a witness for Christ. So wherever I go, I'm going to be a witness. Um, when the book came out, how did people react? Well, not a lot of people knew about the book, but I did send one to my sister, and her reaction was, I never knew you were in so much pain as a little boy. So I've gotten some good reactions. I got one person that wrote on, on, on uh, Amazon.com a comment, said, Robert had a little man syndrome. <laughs> so, oh, come on. <laughs> but, but I got quite a few uh, um, fives on, on people that who read the book and really enjoyed the book. Uh, the main reason for that book, and there was a couple of reasons, but the main reason was people in my past can't know what I'm doing because they don't know where I was at that point in time that I was writing the book. And people who I'm with now can never imagine I was that guy. So it's kind of like bringing both people together to understand that this is where, who I was but this is who I am today and know? what was it like for your daughter and others to watch that transformation my my daughter I was out of her life for 15 years because she didn't even know where I was let's again witness protection program they didn't know where I was uh, found my daughter through Facebook uh, connected uh, there's a lot of hurt a lot of pain with my daughter sure, sure. Uh, she feels completely uh, abandoned by her dad you know, she was going to school as a kid, and all the fathers are there with their children for Parents' Day, whatever it is, and yet she doesn't have a father. So there's a lot of hurt there, and we're, we're working. Me and my daughter are working right now trying to heal, yeah. to heal the pain. I'm trying to be as patient and loving as a dad as I possibly can yeah. be. 
Yeah, it's you know the, this is a a story of redemption. It is not easy. It is, but it's amazing to see where your life is now, and you're walking around sharing Jesus with people. Yes. And you think about that person who you were before, and you got the new name, the new social security number, but spiritually, the person you were before, when you reflect on that person and who you are now, what do you think? Well, I'll give you a great analogy. In, 19, in September 9th, 1997, they were having a baptism in prison, and I was gonna get baptized all over again. What happened was a spiritual thing. I was crying like a little baby. Didn't know why, but what was feeling is I was mourning. Because I knew I was going into the witness protection program to get a new life. I was mourning the death of Robert Borelli. And when I came on that, I knew that I was now a new creation in Christ Jesus. So I was kind of like dead and then resurrected again as a new person. So it, it's, it was hard in the beginning because it's hard to explain to people. Yeah. You know, when they're trying to fill out a job or... You know, where's your background? You don't have any any people that could vouch for you, and I couldn't. Yeah, what can you do? I mean, no, I don't. Yeah, right. Exactly. So a lot of people would wonder about that. So it was hard in the beginning. Then even sometimes I would sign my old name because I, you know, in the beginning I wasn't too familiar with the new name that I had. So it was a challenge in in everything, but through everything, I would never change places with anybody in the world for where I am today. What I'm would, so thankful. What would you say to somebody right now, and maybe they're in the mafia or they're in a similar organization, or maybe they're struggling with some other issue, some other sin that they can't get out of and they're trying, but they desperately want to change. What would you say to them? This, this, the theme of my message today, and it's going to be on, on YouTube soon, is it's never too late for a new beginning. My new beginning for me started on my knees crying out for, for Jesus for help. I said, God, please help me. Please help me. I, I don't want to live like this anymore. I believe the desire and the sincerity of my heart, God answered that thing, came and rescued me from myself. So what I would say to anybody, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what problems, what circumstances you might find yourself in, pornography, whatever it is, addictions, anything like that, you know, a bad marriage, whatever it is, I'm here to tell you, it's never, never, never too late for a new beginning. For me, it started on my knees, and for you, it could start on your knees also. I love it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. The book is The Witness. You can check that out. And I appreciate you coming on today. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. So that was Robert Borelli. And Trey, I don't know about you, but that accent, that New York accent, was amazing. I don't, you know, he mentioned Goodfellas uh, during y'all's conversation, but I just thought, I feel like I'm listening to an episode, or not an episode, but the movie Goodfellas right now. It really was. I mean, like when, when you hear the word mob, that's the kind of like stereotypical oh, yeah. voice that you think of. But but honestly, his story really is incredible in so many ways. What was your what was your biggest takeaway on it? You know, I think it was really powerful toward the end of your conversation when he was talking, it kind of came full circle where he had he had talked a bit about his journey and, and some of the, the wrongdoing that he did and the, the mess that he got mixed up in. But then talking about going into the witness protection program and getting a new identity, he said he got a new identity in the natural world uh, is just like the, the spiritual identity that Christ gave him. Uh, I thought, man, that's a great way to word it. It's a good way to put it into normal language. Cause I think as Christians, we can get tied up in using like what we call Christianese <laughs> where we make it sound really complex and only us believers really understand it. Uh, but he watered it down in a way that I think most people it, it's accessible to them that way. 
Yeah, and like having gone through the witness protection program, and I love that he was thrown out of it, by the way, but having <laughs> gone through that, I mean, it, it sounded it, it sounded like a really painful journey. You make all these mistakes, you have this daughter, um, mm -hmm. and your mistakes separate you from your daughter. You realize those mistakes, you take the steps to move forward, then you have to go into witness protection because there's obviously, if you're going to turn on people in the mafia, you're going to pay a cost or there's gonna be a price to pay for that. And so hearing his journey, I really sympathized with just the mistakes that we all make. We all have sins. They're all different sins. Not everybody's joining the mafia or, or aligning with a mob family. But in his case, you really saw that he hit that, that place where he could have gone. And he even said he, he had that ultimatum to God, just have somebody take me out or change my life and change my heart. And thank God it was the latter, right? I mean, it's just incredible to see that kind of life change. Yeah. And, you know, something, too, that I think we shouldn't uh, gloss over is the humility that it requires of him to be so forthcoming and so honest about uh, his past and where he is now and where he went wrong. Uh, and also even saying, uh, you know, a lot of the things that I was tempted to do that I ended up doing, uh, whether it was drugs or violence or, or whatever he may have done, uh, he said, there's a reason for it, right? There was something that was unresolved. There was something that I didn't address. There was emotional damage that I never dealt with. Uh, and, you know, he comes from a generation, and certainly I would imagine in that culture of, of being in the mob, uh, you you get this, you know, you just shove down your feelings, you know, swallow swallow your pride, do what you got to do type, uh, type mentality. Um, so to be where he is now and acknowledge, look, there were things that I didn't address emotionally, that I should have addressed and that could have stopped a lot of this heartache from happening. I think that takes a lot of humility. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what our podcast is about, right? Like showing that kind of life change. And I think that kind of humility, because to go on the record and talk about, it, it's one thing to have sins that are really horrific and that the world will look at, you know, God looks at a sin as a sin, but the rest of us, you know, we, we love to sort of put sins in tears and, you know, you look at the tear of his sin, it would be a lot easier to be quiet about it, but he's out there sharing it, talking about it. This is somebody who spent his life just to underscore how much of a change this was for most of his life in and out of prison at 42 years old, ends up in Rikers Island, one of the scariest prisons. And to just sort of see how that shit shook out really was inspiring to me because if he can change, really anybody could change. Yeah, 100%. And I think you're exactly right that this, his story, uh, Robert's story is really the perfect, um, he's the perfect candidate for this podcast, right? Because he has gone from, from being in the darkness uh, to being in the light. And there was a pivotal moment of Christ coming into his life uh, that flipped the switch uh, and and him sharing it. I know he also goes to churches around the country and, and to different groups and talks to them, uh, whether it's people who are in the mob, uh, maybe entertaining, being in some sort of violent organization, or they're dealing with, like you said, any number of sins. The principles are exactly the same for all of us. Uh, so kudos to him for being so open and, and willing to share his story and how the Lord has transformed him. Yeah, and I love to the tagline on his website from mafia to ministry, and it's just yeah, it's, perfect. It's so perfect, right? But and if people want to get his book or find out more about Robert Borelli Ministries, his website is robertborelli.com. As always, Trey, great getting to break this one down with you, and we will see you all next week for another episode of the Prodigal Stories podcast.